listening to With Woman, a podcast hosted by midwives Sophie and Ashley. Join us as we help you to navigate the transition from womanhood to motherhood and everything in between. With Woman is your unfiltered and raw guide to empowering you to trust the process in hopes that each episode leaves you feeling a little more supported through your journey. Before we get into this episode, a little disclaimer. Although we are midwives, the information discussed in this podcast is not intended to substitute the care or advice of your healthcare provider. And we swear a lot. So here's your warning on that too. Hey everyone. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you so much for the listen so far. Yeah, it's definitely been a bit of a whirlwind for Ash <laughs> and I, but um, we just want to say a very big thank you to everyone for all the love, the listens. We've received so much feedback since launching. Yeah, it's been really nice. Thank you. Also want to clarify a few things though. <laughs> What do you want to clarify? <laughs> I got a lot of messages and I think you got a couple too about the charging crystals incident. <laughs> yeah, I did actually. And I need to just clarify that it was a lockdown activity and it's not a routine practice for me to be going down to the ocean and washing my crystals. I love that you just want to clarify that you don't do that all the time. Well, even my mum was like, um, what? <laughs> you okay? <laughs> Oh, but it's been a pretty big week, actually. Finally getting out of lockdown soon. Yeah, it's very exciting. I actually um, got a message. We got a lot of messages from our colleagues, which was really lovely, because obviously I think we were most nervous about the critique from the people that we work alongside. Yeah, I think I was really nervous about getting the the midwife response. (laughs) I didn't really care that much if other women thought we bombed it, but I cared a lot about (laughs) Midwife response and family response for me. Yeah. (laughs) Which I had one of my brothers message me and say, I'm the only brother that didn't get a mention, so... (laughs) (laughs) For Rough. Todd, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually got a message from one of um, the midwives who used to work with us on group practice, and she just kind of like reiterated kind of what we were talking about in the first episode. I'm going to relay the message back to you because I think it's so funny and it completely <laughs> encapsulates the life of a midwife. Um, so she said, she said to me, it was actually a voice memo too because I think she was driving home at the time. She's like, 10 p.m., driving home, so many births. I smell, pretty sure just got my period, not wearing a tampon, haven't eaten in nine hours, haven't peed either. I love my job. (laughs) Which, if that doesn't say anything about a nurse or midwife life, then... (laughs) I don't know what, I don't know how else you summarize it. Exactly. Kind of leads into our episode though today. (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about everything pelvic floor with the lovely Caitlin, which I actually went and saw a women's health physio last week now to finally five months later get my pelvic floor and abdominal muscles checked which I thought was quite important postpartum and how was your report card it was pretty good actually yeah (laughs) my pelvic floor she said good I can hold for seven seconds so she wants me to get to 10 seconds and I still have two centimeters diastasis which is your abdominal separation so Got That's, a little bit of work to do with that one. It's pretty normal, isn't it? Yeah. So I've just got like exercises and stuff to do, which I need to do every single day, which leads us on to, well, <laughs> most days I have. <laughs> getting up from bed, getting have, out of well, the couch. <laughs> I have an app that reminds me at 7pm every night that I need to do it. So um, I'll get my notification in about an hour. <laughs> 
So on this episode of With Woman, we chat to Caitlin from at Pelvic Floor with Caitlin, which is her Instagram tag. Tag, yeah. Caitlin's a physiotherapist, which she specializes in women's health. So she coined the hashtag thinking inside the box, which is very clever of her. (laughs) Very clever. She practices in both um, the public and private health sector, which she refers to as her quote-unquote elitist clients, which we'll talk a little bit more on this later in the episode. Upon noticing a significant gap in the equity of the provision and access to information for women, particularly surrounding pelvic floor she started the pelvic floor project which is a website you can access as well and it's aimed at providing easily accessible information to women at any stage of life in regards to their pelvic floor function now caitlin's philosophy is very similar to ours in that she's super passionate about empowering women to build stronger connections with their bodies and aside from this she's also a business owner and has recently started her journey into motherhood So to give a bit of background, Caitlin and I have actually been friends since high school. She has always been incredibly driven and a massive overachiever. Um, And we are really excited for her to be on the pod today and to help normalize conversations surrounding bladder leakage and the health and maintenance of our pelvic floor. Because despite what Billy Madison says, (laughs) it's actually not cool to pee your pants. And we don't have to suck it up and deal with it. As Caitlin will explain in this episode, with the right follow-up, we can actually improve our pelvic floor dysfunction. Yeah. So now in this episode, we've decided to focus on really the basics and also how to maintain pelvic floor stability in pregnancy. Um, We do plan on doing a separate episode with Caitlin on postnatal recovery, including all the things like prolapse in a future episode. But we decided that it's just, it's way too much to try to fit into one episode. And we really want to nail it yeah especially with the postpartum we don't want to rush it because that's such an important component yeah Yeah. so to introduce the beautiful caitlin welcome to the potty caitlin (laughs) thank you how do you feel being our first guest oh a little bit nervous about your interviewing style but i'm ready (laughs) what our rapid questions Well, before we kick this off, we like to know a little bit about the people that we're interviewing and we're really interested in figuring out why people do the work that they do. So can you give us a little insight into how you became a physio and the reason why you've gone down this path in specializing in women's health? Yeah, for sure. So physio, I guess, like lots of people, you fall into a career based on what you do when you go to university. I think I've chosen to study physiotherapy because I love the human body. Um, I liked, I was very active as a teenager and I thought that was, it was either that or study medicine. And I really liked the way that physiotherapists got to follow the rehab journey of patients. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're in medicine, you sort of don't really get to follow that journey. It's, I shouldn't say less rewarding is the wrong word, but I think for my type of personality, possibly less rewarding. I decided to study physio. And then I also, in order to pay my way through physio, my parents were very strong on, we're not even handing you everything. So I got a... I love that. I can relate. Hex <laughs> I ended up studying, um, getting my cert three and four and being, becoming a personal trainer and group fitness instructor and did that for fun and also for money. Had lots of fun and just found myself working with a lot of women um, and women pre and post pregnancy. So I had mm-hmm. a, a bit of an interest that way. And I guess my exercise background drew me to my love of women's health as well. But then I was also just lucky enough to come across the right mentors at the right time with the right mm-hmm. caseload in a public health system. Yeah. What would you say has been your career highlight so far? Highlights plural or highlight? Any. <laughs> if you have multiple, go for it. <laughs> I think um, 
if I think back to my career, easily one of my biggest highlights has been working in a massive tertiary public hospital and the experience that I was able to gain there being a senior clinician in a paediatrics and women's health team. Mm. I've been working, I worked at Liverpool Hospital for almost nine years. And um, in that time, I think the highlight was working in the paediatrics and women's health team as a senior where I got to see everything from, you know, I was present at vaginal births and C-sections through to working alongside like some of our country's best urogynecologists in multidisciplinary teams. And I just think you can't get that experience anywhere else. And I was just very lucky. Did it enable you to have any continuity through that process? Look, the system is flawed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of continuity. So I could see I could see women antenatally for pain and then, you know, choose to be present at their birth if, you That's know, cool. it, it was the right thing at the time. And then I would see them postnatally on the ward. And then I would see them as follow-up. Um, and that's that's the goal, right? You yes. guys, midwifery has done it, has finally cracked the code and sort of started that. But we would love to see physios be part of that. Oh, so gosh. what does a physio do at the birth when you're present? So for a lot of it is just exposure. So okay. I'm learning, not necessarily me coaching. There are lots of physios out there that specialize in birth coaching. But oh. I think that that's a little bit, it's a little bit more specific and we don't see it a lot. And so yeah. my role in being present at birth was either to be a support person for that person or just to gain exposure for myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah, that is cool. Actually. I think it was really important having like, I've, I've got a one-year-old now, but you know, in my early on in my career, I'm treating and I've never been through pregnancy or childbirth and not being able to even see it. Yeah. And yeah. then treating all these women with childbirth related trauma. It's quite, it's quite hard. Yeah. It would be challenging yeah, actually. Yeah. If you haven't seen the physiology of birth, yeah. you only know it through a textbook, then you don't understand why women don't choose to birth in other positions, for example, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. 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 Very true. And I think also you can, you can never underestimate the all-encompassing nature that birth is and how mm. emotional... Because I see all yeah. these women with a lot of emotional trauma yes. postpartum. And, you know, I can't understand that unless I've seen it. Yeah, 100%. It's and it's all about, yeah, the language and the... Oh, there's so many factors that come yeah. into play in, yeah. in terms of emotional trauma yeah. after a birth. So next question for you is, who is Caitlin outside of work? Ooh, goody. <laughs> Caitlin outside of work is a mum. Um, so I mentioned before, I have a son. His name's Loki. I'm also a wife to Sean, <laughs> and we all live together in northwestern Sydney. You had a great wedding, by the way. Ooh, really? <laughs> it's very fun. Yeah. yeah. Where'd you get married at? Um, Benduli Estate. Oh, in I looked at that place. Yes, not looked at that place, but like I looked him up yesterday. I'm planning my wedding. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't told you yet. No. <laughs> I was looking at you then. I'm like, sorry. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. Keep going. <laughs> we um. I think the wedding was a really nice indication of who I am as a person because, yeah. you know, I like good food, I like a party, I like to dance. Less so, that's not so much me now, eating out and going dancing. But um, <laughs> I don't think that's any of us. No. <laughs> Watch me in a but week's time. Like, I'm back, baby. <laughs> Post-COVID. Oh. Big, on, big on exercise, big on community sport, big on team, team sport. Um, that's played a massive part in my life as a teenager and now as a young adult. Or I should, am I allowed no, to say yeah, yeah, you're allowed to say that. 100%. We're young adults. Keep it rolling. Yes, we are. At what point do you turn into a not a young adult? Never. I feel like I could possibly hit that point, but that's okay. I'll just keep (laughs) raising the bar as I keep getting older. Um, But no, yeah, team and community sport for me, it's at the moment it's touch football and CrossFit, but it's previously been swimming and netball and just new community gym. I love the friendliness and the community aspect of all of that type of sport. I've made lifelong friends that have been at my wedding and, you know, I will forever be friends with those people that I've met through community sport. I only realise the importance of community sport later on. You meet a lot of people through sport, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Which I realise moving to Sydney at like a later age than like teenage years, it's hard to meet like 
like-minded adult, people. Even just adult friends is hard to meet people. Mm. What's your idea or philosophy on or about motherhood? Good question. Um, caveat, these ladies hit me up with a few of the questions prior to this, which is very nice. And you know, <laughs> I think it's important because it actually, I actually haven't reflected on that question until I was asked it. So it's a really, Loki being one, it's been really nice to actually sit down and be like, what does motherhood mean to me? Yeah. And I recently, when I was pregnant, I finished Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life for the second yes. time. Oh, you read it twice? Yeah. Good on you. I'll have to give that a read. It just didn't resonate for me. I thought it was Same. I was just reading it because it was a top seller and it was very biblical and I found yes. it really tough to get through. Same. And so it took me forever and I didn't really take much in, but I feel yeah. like I was in the right headspace when I was pregnant. So I just challenged myself to do it again. Yeah. And I think rule seven, he talks about like meaning and what is the meaning of life and how do we bring meaning to our lives? And he discusses the idea that if you sacrifice something, you get rewarded. And if we take that to the nth degree, the ultimate sacrifice leads to the ultimate reward. And that to me just rings true for motherhood because yeah, that it is, is so yeah. much sacrifice and you just can't even describe the reward. It's just like you're at the, both ends of the spectrum. There's nothing in the middle. Oh, I can't wait for that to That was me. deep. I like that. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't really think about that question until you do get asked it. Like, I haven't even thought about it, really. Yeah. Yeah. But I really love hearing everyone's answer yeah. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Because motherhood's really different, I reckon. Yeah. For so many women. Mm -hmm. Motherhood, like, letting An go identity. of yourself. Yeah, yeah. And that little shift. Big shift, really. <laughs> Massive shift. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you think we can empower women more, particularly in relation to women's health issues and, if we go right into it, pelvic floor issues? Even on my website, the Pelvic Floor Project, I've even said that my goal is to empower women through knowledge mm -hmm. um, and I think knowledge is one of the most empowering things that we can do is spread knowledge but I'm mindful that just putting information out there I don't want to add to the noise and sometimes that's yeah. and what I'm noticing in a lot of my patients is it's not helpful to have more information I think the empowerment comes when we as health professionals can link the knowledge to that patient and so that they can apply it to their life so until that they, you get that light bulb moment with the patient, that knowledge is not useful, right? So it's all about trying to get women to understand more about their bodies so that they can pick and choose what information is applicable to them. And so your ideal is just providing a place to access that when the time comes that they're ready to find out more information on this specific topic. Definitely. And what's the one thing you wish that women knew about their pelvic floor? That it doesn't, it can play up not just if you're pregnant or if, if you've had a baby. You know, you could be a 16-year-old gymnast and have issues with your pelvic floor. You could be a 25-year-old lawyer and still have issues with your pelvic floor mm -hmm. and have never even thought about pregnancy before. Let's go right back to the basics. Where is our pelvic floor and why is it so important? So I don't want to bore people with anatomy, <laughs> an anatomy lesson, but I do think... But they need to know. <laughs> no, 100% they need to know and I also think that... One of the issues that I find so much when women come to me is that the pelvic floor has been oversimplified. Because it's been so oversimplified, they actually have no clue really yeah. about what it is and they don't really know much about it. So they're sort of just like making up this make-believe muscle in their head. And it's interesting if we got everybody to draw what they thought the pelvic floor looked like. You know, you're just the crazy stuff that some of my patients describe what they think their pelvic floor is. Like oh. this tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny little circle muscle that exits their urethra where they weave from. It's just, <laughs> it's so much more complex than that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. If we do simplify it just a little bit to multiple muscles that make up two layers, 
and they sit like a sling at the base of the pelvis, the pelvis being the bony muscles that make up your hips and the base of your spine. And if you think about the points at which it slings across like a trampoline, it's your pubic bone at the front. So if you take your hands down towards the bottom of your belly. Ash is touching your pubic bone. (laughs) Feel for the hard part at the front, that's your pubic bone. Round to your tailbone at the back. And then your left and right sit bones, so the top of your thighs. Mm. That creates like a diamond. It's quite a large area. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It is after lockdown. It's like, it's a it's a sling, you know, you've got those muscles slinging between. And like you mentioned before, the three holes, mm-hmm. then we have the muscles. So the muscles have little spaces in them where the bladder exits, where the uterus and vagina exit, and where the bowel exits. Mm-hmm. So even just having a think about how big it is and how what it spans and where it sits, already you can gain an idea of how important it is. So on top of those muscles sit the bladder at the front, the uterus in the middle, and the bowel at the back. And so when the pelvic floor muscles are on and tight, they play a role in keeping all of those organs up nice and high within the pelvic cavity. They play a role in stopping your bladder from opening when you don't want it to open, so controlling urine. They play a role in controlling gas and stool. And when contracting, they play a role in creating core stability and sexual arousal. And then you think about the other actions that muscles have and the muscles can relax and lengthen. And so when a muscle relaxes and lengthens, it plays a role in emptying your bladder, allowing you to do a poo. It also plays a role in allowing you to have a baby, to reduce tension in the abdominal cavity. So you don't want to always just be creating tension, tension, tension. Mm. Relaxing the pelvic floor allows you to release tension as well in the Mm. pelvic cavity. So there's lots of different reasons and I guess roles that the pelvic floor have for multiple reasons. I feel like it's pretty much one of your most important muscles. A lot of people wouldn't even think of it really, but like it controls three of the biggest components in your body. Yeah. You use it every day, all the time. And men as well. Like, obviously, we're talking today specifically about the pelvic floor and women, but men have a pelvic floor and it plays a significant role in men too. So it does play a significant role in males. So you yeah. never, I never hear discussions yeah. about a male's pelvic floor. No, I never do either. Yeah, so, it, like, the same issues. Men can have urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, pain. Mm-hmm. Um, it plays a role in keeping and gaining an erection, like, lots of things. Oh, I did not know that. I'm learning so much already. I actually didn't even know, even as a woman, that our pelvic floor can inhibit our sexual arousal. Yeah, really interesting. And obviously, sex and sexual arousal, it's so complex, right? How you experience sex is down to what you're thinking about, how much stress you have if you've had previous trauma. But, mm-hmm. yes, the pelvic floor plays a big role in it. Interesting. So then how does pelvic floor dysfunction occur? Like we said before, the muscle needs to squeeze and activate to do some of its roles and it needs to relax and expand to do some of its roles. So if the muscle can't squeeze strongly or if it can't relax and lengthen or if it can't coordinate when it does those things, that's when we'll see dysfunction. And that's like the dysfunction would be like when you leak, when you're sneezing, laughing, coughing. Yeah, so you could see dysfunction in any of the roles that the pelvic floor plays. So you could see issues with controlling urine. You could see issues with not being able to empty the bladder properly. You could see issues with constipation, pain, lots of different things that pelvic floor dysfunction can play a role in symptom-wise. So what's the best way that we can train it or like activate it? It's controversial, right? I'm sure as midwives, you've heard lots of different ways that you could squeeze the pelvic floor. Mm. You've probably heard squeeze like you're trying to stop urine, squeeze like you're trying to tighten around the vagina. There are lots of, and if you've ever done Pilates in the Eastern suburbs, you would have heard (laughs) a million other ways to squeeze your pelvic floor. (laughs) In the research, we know that if we have, we take say a hundred women and we give them different cues and then we put pressure transducers in their vagina and we see what their pelvic floor is doing 
a anatomical level, the different cues we use end up with women doing the right or the wrong thing. And we know that we get most women doing the right thing if we cue back passage. Oh. So if I say squeeze around the pelvic floor like you're trying to hold wind or squeeze around the anus like you're trying to tighten and hold wind. Are you doing it? I'm doing it. (laughs) (laughs) I just saw your face go like kind of concentration. That makes more sense than yeah, sitting at the yeah. traffic light trying to do Kegels. Yes. Because you say to women, do you do your Kegels? Or like, how often do you do them? And they're like, yeah, yeah. But then I always think, do women actually even know how to do them properly? Yeah. I was yeah. always taught, lie down. This was in my very early 20s. Lie down and put your hand on your tummy. Suck in your pelvic floor muscles. And if you're feeling your tummy move, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, and so the hand on your tummy is a nice biofeedback to feel if your abs are contracting because that's what pelvic floor isn't. Your pelvic floor isn't your abs contracting. Your pelvic floor isn't your bottom squeezing. It's actually the internal muscles. But I guess the key word there that would confuse lots of women is suck. Because if Mm. we say suck, then women take a breath in and it's that pressure change that draws the pelvic floor Mm -hmm. up not the muscle squeezing itself Mm -hmm. so i always cue pelvic floor on the exhale but i never confuse women to start off with with breath cueing i always breath cue later all i want at the start is a correct contraction and if i'm doing a telehealth session which has become obviously really important in the last you know 12 months some of the things i get my females to do if they're not sure if they're doing the right thing because obviously you need biofeedback. You need some reassurance that you're doing the right thing. Totally. And if you don't yeah. have me there touching the muscle or yeah. if you don't have a mirror and you're doing like a squat, like, you know, if you're doing a squat, you can tell. You look in the mirror, you look at your legs. Am I doing a squat? Am I not doing a squat? Yeah. It's very simple. Yeah. <laughs> but with the pelvic floor, it's harder. So you can get biofeedback through lots of different ways. One of the ways is visual feedback. So you can get a mirror, put one foot up on the edge of the bath, take a mirror, spread labia, and you look at perineum. So you look between the vagina and the anus, and you're looking to see the muscle, that perineum, shorten and draw in. So you should see some changes in all movement. If you see bearing down, so if you see that area get longer and push out, then you're doing the wrong thing. Okay, interesting. And then the other option women have is to actually palpate. So you could put in the shower, you could pop a finger around the external anal sphincter. So you don't have to insert your finger, you're just touching the area, and you'll feel the muscle tighten around your finger. Are you like, I've been doing it wrong the whole time. (laughs) Just like backtracking, what are the main reasons that lead to women having pelvic floor dysfunction that you see in your clinic? There are some major risk factors for pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, one of them being pregnancy and vaginal childbirth, particularly traumatic vaginal childbirth. So use of vacuum or forceps that lead to a third or fourth degree perineal tear. But there are lots of other risk factors that happen to lots of people outside of that. So being overweight, chronic constipation, and chronic coughing so people that have asthma or allergies oh, i didn't even think it's too much force on the pelvic floor yeah. yeah so actually the force that we put on the pelvic floor during a cough is greater than that if we lift weights above our head if we jump or if we run wow so if you're repetitively coughing then you're putting a lot of stress over time on your pelvic floor so they're just some of the risk factors yeah. And does every woman need to regularly perform pelvic floor exercises? I, I, I don't think that everybody needs to do pelvic floor muscle exercises all the time. I do think that if you're somebody that's had a previous injury or a previous issue with your pelvic floor, then you definitely have to think about pelvic floor muscles for the rest of your life. Not necessarily mm-hmm. do them every day, but I liken it to if you've torn your ACL and you know you go through rehab and then two, three years later, you're probably still thinking about your knee and you still have some warm-up exercises that you do for your knee because it's always going to be your niggly spot. There are going to be a lot of women out there with the same thing for their pelvic floor. 
Likewise, if you have lots of risk factors for pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, then I do think that pelvic floor exercises are important for you. But if you're somebody that is young, healthy, hasn't had a baby, hasn't doesn't doesn't have any symptoms of pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, there's no need to go out and do them regularly or be fearful that you should be doing them. Which I feel like as a woman, you're always told growing up, like you yeah. have to do your pelvic floor exercises. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really I mean, happy. As you age, yeah. it's important. But, you know, when you're younger, there's no there's no stress. It, it activates during, like if you're a fit female and you're doing activities like weightlifting or cross-training or Pilates and yoga, you will have, if your pelvic floor muscles are perfect, functioning correctly, then they will activate during different activities where you're using your breath or activating your core. Yeah, okay. I was actually going to ask that, like whether involuntary exercises you know, tone pelvic floor. So like Pilates, yoga, things like that, that involve a lot of breath work, you're involuntary, mostly activating your pelvic floor as well as your yeah. core. Yeah. Yeah. So for women, say over 40, is it the same exercises for women that are like under 40, regardless yeah. of if they've had children or not? Yeah. I think we would, the pelvic floor muscle training program, we put somebody on. So that we refer to that as like the reps and sets and you know what position we have somebody in and how long they squeeze for that's independent to the person and what their main concern is um so for example um somebody who has had a third or fourth uh, who let's say a fourth degree perineal tear so a tear extending into most of their anus during childbirth then that person you know long term their pelvic floor muscle exercises might concentrate more more on the back passage so i might keep the back passage cue for a long period of time and we'd be working on endurance holds so holding the muscle for a long period of time because their main concern might be not being able to hold wind yeah yeah versus a gymnast who's 16 who's never had a baby whose main concern is that she's leaking when she jumps in or lands a jump in gym mm. then she we would be looking at more of an anterior cue so a front cue um for her and we would be looking on both lengthening the pelvic floor and relaxing as well as tightening um so there's lots of different ways we can do pelvic floor muscle training but and they, they'd be specific to the person and what their concerns are and do the strength of your glute muscles play a role in any of it really yeah in yeah. any of it there's some research coming out now to show that if we can strengthen the hip external rotators, so some of the gluteal oh, yeah. muscles and the muscles around that, then we can have a flow-on effect to improving pelvic floor muscle tone and pelvic floor muscle dysfunction symptoms. But that said, just because you have tight glutes doesn't mean you have a good functioning pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and what are the, some of the reasons why pelvic floor exercises wouldn't be improving for someone? I get asked this question a lot and I think that it boils down to three main things is that you're not doing the exercise correctly. So you are, you think you're doing a pelvic floor squeeze, but you actually haven't been checked, you know, vaginally or rectally to check if you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. So A, you're doing the wrong thing. B, you're not doing enough. So you haven't reached that dose response um, stage of, of exercise so that you can see change in the muscle so just like any other muscle you can't do like say we're doing bicep curls to build build big guns right <laughs> you can't just carry around a hand weight and you know flex your bicep every now and then and expect you to build you that you're going to build muscle you know you have to do 10 repetitions for three sets to failure and then increase gradually increase the weight or the difficulty of that exercise over time yeah that really the same goes me. for the pelvic floor okay yeah. And I guess the third one is that you haven't been doing it long enough. So most pelvic floor muscle training programs will go for about 12 weeks and we start to see changes at about four weeks 
but we don't see the full effect of pelvic floor muscle training until 10 to 12 weeks. Is this, <laughs> is this daily for 12 weeks? Lots of the research that they have patients doing it daily. Yeah. However, that is not, and here's where the disruption comes between, you know, um, I guess exercise physiology principles and what we're doing in pelvic floor physio because not not really for any other muscle in the body are we doing strength training every yeah. single day. We're yeah. getting rest days. So yeah. for me personally in my clinic, I see changes in people that don't do them every day. Um, but the research, or lots of the protocols in research, are every day. Yeah, because it's not like you'd go to the gym and do legs like every single day. No, no. and it's actually not encouraged, right? You want the muscle to yes. relax. But I guess the pelvic floor is special in that it doesn't really get to relax ever because well, you're always opening your bowels, closing your bowels, doing wings. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and does like your emotional state ever play effect on pelvic floor front function? So like stress or anxiety, fear. 100% and I see it a lot in some women are going to be more prone to holding tension in their pelvic floor than others um, but I'm sure you've heard of the stressed out um, worker who's holding tension in their jaw mm. and we do have some some research to show that the tension in the jaw can also be linked to tension in the pelvic floor but some people wow. just relax yes that's why they say in childbirth relax your jaw relaxes your pelvic floor have you ever yeah. heard that I've never heard I that I learned that in my hypnobirthing class oh. like if your jaw is relaxed and your lips are relaxed then your pelvic floor is going to be relaxed how is that connected <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's amazing a lot of people do without thinking hold a lot of tension in their pelvic floor and that can be related to phys- emotional stress now I have a self-indulgent question is the nurse's bladder a real thing Short answer, yes. Okay. So, <laughs> Am I going to be incontinent in 10 back, years? <laughs> not all nurses go in, you know, not everybody goes into nursing with a tight, overactive pelvic floor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and not all nurses come out with tight, overactive pelvic floors. But we see a lot of nurses, um, and I think it comes down to both a physically and a mentally challenging job. You're on your feet, you're often lifting from the floor, you're picking up patients, you're pushing patients. So that physicality combined with the mental stress, combined with long shifts where you can't just go to the toilet whenever you want, so that bladder holding. Mm. I see lots of nurses that carry tension in their pelvic floor, so you spend a lot of time squeezing your pelvic floor, so it becomes short because it's always on, so we see it become tight first Mm -hmm. and not be able to relax and lengthen, and then a shortened muscle over time will lead to weakness, so then we see a tight, weak pelvic floor. And the symptoms of that would be constipation, leaking, bladder urgency. So you go from being able to hold all the time to being like, I feel like I've been punched in the bladder. I need to rush to the toilet. Yeah. Frequent UTIs. I guess in your experiences as nurses and midwives, what do you see as you know a nurse's bladder? What are the, some of the symptoms that you see the most or hear everybody talk about? Well, I can give you an example of like, say... I'll be at work, it's like 8am in the morning, I'll be incredibly busting, but something will happen and I don't have the opportunity to go to the bathroom. I'll continue drinking water or whatever all throughout that day. <laughs> or Diet Coke. Diet Coke. <laughs> I knew you were fucking going to say that. <laughs> um, and then I'll get home and the key will be in the door of my apartment and I will be like, oh my gosh, if I don't go right now, I'm going to lose it. And yeah. like, grateful, haven't had bladder leakage. Thank goodness, but it's that all of a sudden it's like switched back on. And is that a mental, like a internal mental connection? Yeah, so that's we call that urge urgency. 
um, and we call it urge urinary incontinence when because lots of women like over time if your bladder if your pelvic floor weakens a little bit then your at the moment your pelvic floor is obviously offsetting that bladder contraction that's happening mm. but um, I don't know if you've ever done or heard of the study called Pavlov's dogs no ever heard of it? no <laughs> so there's this famous neuros um, yeah I think he's a neurologist um, it's a, a paper that was done years and years and years and years and years ago but they use it all the time to to teach this theory but you have these dogs um and every time they eat they ring a bell so the dogs get fed every time the bell rings and then it gets to the point where they don't get fed so when when dogs eat they obviously produce saliva but then they could ring the bell and those salivary glands start producing saliva in anticipation but they're actually not eating yet Mm -hmm. so the same thing happens with your bladder so you go 10 years with every time you get home going to the toilet and then all of a sudden you, you get home and you're actually not on the toilet, but your bladder's already squeezing like you're on the toilet. It's insane, hey? And oh, I'm I... so glad I stopped shift work. I can't be having that. Well, I also, <laughs> when I was working, I hate going to the toilet to do a poo. At oh, work. yes. I you're shocking. I cannot do it. <laughs> so so... like, I'm sorry, I've got to go. <laughs> I would hold like all day until I got home and that would be so bad as well. Yeah, and, it, and look, when you're young and it obviously is not playing a pro- it's not doing anything for you, but it's that repetitive, it's that pattern of behaviour done repetitively over time that can, you know, reinforce bad behaviours for your bladder and bowels. So we've got to start weeing more and pooping more at work. So, <laughs> so having a tight pelvic floor, does that equal having a tight vagina as well? Like, is it all related? It can be, yeah. yeah so okay. women can have um, the tightness of the pelvic floor can affect, and when we talk about a tight vagina, we talk about in te- the technical term is the levator hiatus, so the space um, between, I guess, so the space of your vagina that you see yeah. if you were to um, spread labia, yeah. and that size can be related to the, the tightness or, the, or how strong the pelvic floor muscles are. It's not always a good thing, though. And no. while we're on, um, like, <laughs> talking about vagina sizes, etc. <laughs> Sophie measured hers. <laughs> no, I was going to ask if, like, penis size can inhibit, like, pelvic floor muscles. Yeah, we don't have much research on that. And I think the only population that penis size would actually matter because, you know, there is some research done by sexologists in that um, field out there that penis size doesn't actually play into sexual arousal or um, intimacy very much um, for women. You know, it's it's almost an, it's almost negligible. Like if we look at it as a factor by itself, it, we don't see that increasing penis size or decreasing penis size affects arousal in a female. Um, that said, the only time it would really matter would be in somebody who's experiencing pain, so has a mm-hmm. diagnosed condition like vaginismus, mm-hmm. and in that case, penis size would affect ability to have penetration. Um, but other than that, I don't think it really matters. And while we're on the topic of like sexual health and whatnot, we'll just keep this ball rolling. Does like things like endometriosis or pelvic inflammatory disease severely affect pelvic floor function? Do you manage women that have these issues? Yeah, we we see a lot of women with those issues, and I think it's not widely known that physios treat that or can help with that. Mm. So we often see women who have honestly have been like five, six, seven years in their journey with pain and have sort of stumbled across somebody who's known somebody who's got good effects from physiotherapy. Look, it's becoming more, we're becoming more knowledgeable in this field. Um, But both of them, what pelvic inflammatory disease and endometriosis have in common is that they're painful, right? Lots of women experience 
high amounts of pain. And we know that often the pelvic floor muscles will reflexively contract and tighten in response to pain. And so as pelvic floor physios, we have um, stretching and releasing and relaxing the pelvic floor muscles as a tool in our tool belt. But we also have other tools as pelvic floor physios like um, TENS, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation that can help with pain management as well and other, other types of management. Do you find that TENS are effective? I think it depends on the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, yeah, I definitely think it depends on how, like, how much central sensitization you've got going on in their pain, their pain presentation, what else is going on. Yeah. You know, if they had a really tight, overactive pelvic floor and lots of previous trauma around that part of their body mm-hmm. and we're trying to fix it with TENS, well, then, like, yeah. we're not going to get Something there. Gonna I think the TENS is an adjunct to everything else. Yeah, okay. So I hired a TENS machine for my labor and it came with like a little like electrode for your vagina. What what do you do with that? So we can do <laughs> a bit I clearly didn't use it. It was meant to be for like postnatally. Yeah, so you can do electrical stimulation of the pelvic floor muscles per like intravaginally. So you can insert an electrode into the vagina and you can stimulate the pelvic floor muscles through an electrical current. And we often use that for women who can't control their pelvic floor so no matter how hard we try they just can't get that brain muscle connection and they sit at a very weak state for a very long time so it sends electrical impulses into that muscle to cause it to contract that's how it works right so you would use that postnatally to like assist your pelvic floor yeah to get like stronger yeah yeah can recurrent utis affect your pelvic floor function i think if recurrent uti UTIs lead to pain, then that whole pain pathway we talked about before, you you know, you've got pain, then you're always contracting the pelvic floor, can lead to a tight, weak pelvic floor. So mm-hmm. it can happen that way, but it can also happen the other way in that you have, we often see pelvic floor muscle dysfunction leading to frequent UTIs. So for example, mm-hmm. if you had a really tight pelvic floor and a bladder that's not emptying properly, mm-hmm. then you could have this, you know, this um, urethra that's having this post- um, residual urine sitting in it and that can lead to an increased chance of urinary tract infections this is actually giving me so much food for thought in terms of like we really need to incorporate women's health physios much more than what we currently do yeah. in yeah. maternal health care because yeah. how many times do we see women come in in pregnancy with recurrent UTIs that may have not had a previous history of that and it's so tough like pregnancy is a time where I think a lot of the issues around recurrent UTIs in, in pregnancy are likely due to you know hormonal factors of course, yeah. and things like that and I like me personally, like, you know, I have had my pelvic floor assessed plenty of times in lots of different courses by lots of different pelvic floor <laughs> And I can be pretty confident my pelvic floor is not tight and overactive, yet I got shockingly smashed with UTIs in my pregnancy and I tried so hard to avoid that. So I think it's not it's not always the case, but we definitely yeah. see it. Yeah. I think a lot of women, like what I'm coming to realise is a lot of women just don't even think about your pelvic floor, seeing women's health physio until something's wrong, like typically postnatally. We've normalised bladder weakness for one so much that it's like our mums are like, oh, well, you know, I'm a little bit incontinent of urine. That's normal because I've had four children and it's like, well, actually, no, it's not normal. Yeah. We need to stop saying that it's normal. You can improve this. But obviously you need to be able to access the resources in order to do it. I actually asked my mum 
if she had contact with a women's health physio after having her babies because yeah. what like yeah. I'm in my 30s and she saw a women's health physio uh-huh. on the ward postnatally and they did classes like I think that's probably when we started um in hospitals but it's funny that like that that was you know you mentioned 30 years ago yet so many hospitals don't have postnatal physiotherapy classes still yeah yeah it's like Look, actually, she did go private. Yeah, saying. I was just about to say. That's a really important... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because a lot of public hospitals still don't yeah. have access and I, to and I understand that, but I think it just baffles me that we have... Like, it's not like I'm pining for this, you know, this woo-woo stuff that we're talking about, the pelvic floor and sexual health and pelvic floor muscle training. It's not woo-woo. It's been around for ages. Yeah. We have mm. such a strong body of evidence, high-quality evidence. We're talking talking, you know, massive randomized control trials that have led to B Cochrane reviews on lots of different pelvic floor muscle training to treat lots of different things. Yet we still see underfunded or, or just absent um, physiotherapists in this type of, you know, multidisciplinary clinics. And it's hard and it just is going to take a lot of people advocating to get there, right? Yeah. 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 And we need to push for it more, I think, because, yeah, you know, postnatally, and again, we'll do a future episode on this. Hopefully you'll come back with us and we'll talk about it. But women coming through the public system will only have one-to-one access with a women's health physio if they sustain a third or fourth degree tear and get adequate follow-up. But that leaves a large portion of the female population because the third to fourth degree tear rate is less than 3%. So (laughs) that leaves... It's nuts, right? And I think like you know, we could delve into like both of you having been in the public system before. It, this is a, it's a public health issue at the highest point, right? Not just in pelvic health, but it's like, at what point can we put so much funding um, and where does that funding come from in terms of preventative care? Yes. But also how many women are going to be ready to make change in their lives if they aren't concerned about it? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's a matter of, I see so many women that I could treat, but it's just not not worth it is the wrong thing to say but they're not at that point in their lives where they're ready to make change and so it's tough and I guess too it's like it's a conversation as well that women don't under really understand the severity of the potential implications later on in life if they don't take these things seriously now but you're right in saying you can't help someone that's not ready to accept that information Yeah. yeah And so many women come to me, um, and I think that postpartum period is quite a time where lots of people reach out very, very upset and stressed, Yes. Um, whether they've had a traumatic vaginal birth, because I'm seeing all of the third and fourth degree tears, mm. or I'm seeing women who are having symptoms of prolapse, and they're, they're freaking out because now they're researching it, and they're like, I could have prevented this. Um, why didn't anybody tell me this earlier? Yeah. And I'm sort of like, yes, there's a lack of information, but it's also out there, and like I'm jumping up and down along with hundreds and hundreds yes. and hundreds of other professionals to say that it's important but it's like it's so there's so much going on in pregnancy and yeah. as a woman you take in what's important to you and they've just taken in what's important to them yeah yeah and, and it's baby focused yeah 100 percent. and it's the same with like antenatal classes and everything you can only give women as much information yeah. as possible it's it's up to them whether they're going to inhale it and take yeah, it and, and absorb it yeah 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 for sure and i think that's not all of where birth, birth trauma resonates from, but I think a lot of it is just being a little bit tunnel visioned leading into that process and focusing on really small portions of that and not realizing. Yeah. Everything that can happen. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard because I think to get to that point for me personally, it's taken 
you know, 10 years in this industry to to be able to gain that perspective yeah. and that holistic view, right? And you can't give that to somebody in nine months who doesn't have no. a medical background. Yeah. And you particularly can't give it to someone in nine months when you meet them once off, yeah. which is the large portion, again, of maternity services. A woman will access a midwife and see a different midwife every time and it's hard yeah. to build those yeah. relationships and have those conversations. Yeah. There's so much work to be done. There's so <laughs> much to be done. All right. I want to know... What are your thoughts on Kegel balls and the controversial yoni egg? Ooh, I love the yoni egg. Do you have one before I bag it? No, I don't. Have, I don't have one. But you know how Gwyneth Paltrow was selling her Goop. Uh, what she got? This Goop. The she like, has a Goop store and like a Goop podcast yeah, like a and company, really. Yeah. Um, and she was selling jade and rose quartz yoni eggs, and they ended up finding her like one hundred and forty-five thousand dollars for what? yeah for misinformation because. The website claimed that they improved hormonal function, regulated periods, helped with pelvic floor function, which is why I'm asking you your thoughts. But a lot of like gynecologists recognize that that's a natural stone and it's actually quite porous and could lead to like toxic shock syndrome. And so they find them for like misinformation. But how could they prove that it wouldn't help with those things? Well, there's obviously no ever, yeah. there's no ever <laughs> crystals. I'm not putting crystals in my vagina. Don't spread that rumor. <laughs> um, well, there's not enough studies to suggest the benefits. Like they're saying it's going to regulate hormones, uh, but there's yeah. no evidence out there suggesting that that's yeah. actually the truth. So, so what's your opinion on them? <laughs> Let's start with yoni eggs because I think it's worthwhile splitting them into the, the yoni eggs and the Kegel balls or the vaginal cones and weights because they are different and they have separate research on them. So, the, sorry, they don't have separate. One has research. One, one doesn't, yeah. <laughs> the yoni eggs are more, like, they're obviously targeted. You can you see the people, the types of people selling them, and I don't want to box people in. Um, but, you know, they're very, they're all about your sensual, sensual journey with your vagina and, you know, gaining more awareness and energy in that area of your body. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Obviously, there are lots of things that are wrong with possible toxic shock syndrome, but... They do play a role, like if a female is gaining more awareness of that area of their body and connecting better, I think that's half the battle, right? Mm, So I do think they play a role and they're not harmful in that sense. But if you have a diagnosed pelvic floor muscle dysfunction and you're trying to treat that with a yoni egg, then that's not going to work because they need to be part of a holistic program. (laughs) You need more than your yoni egg. Especially if you've got a weak pelvic floor. Poor tone, it's probably going to fall straight out. (laughs) If we then go on to giggle balls and vaginal cones, so we, we put them into the same... Um, sort of category because they're vaginal weights at the end of the day so the ball and the cone usually they the balls are differing weights yeah. and the cones can open and you can put little like weight plates in them and then oh i did not know so you, this yeah so you can increase the weight as you as you progress and you get stronger and so the idea being that you just increase the load on the pelvic floor to generate more muscle strength the same way you would any other exercise you know you go from doing a squat without a weight to adding a bar to adding plates and we can do that for the pelvic floor too no and i guess the caveat there is that it's part of a holistic program so you can't just treat your pelvic floor muscle dysfunction with by sticking a vaginal cone in you then have to make sure you've done the work beforehand and that you know you're doing the right thing blah 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 blah. yeah but there is a role and they do have evidence and research supporting them to say that we can improve pelvic floor muscle strength and reduce symptoms with them. Do you use it often in the programs that you have with your clients? Um, I use them. I wouldn't say often. Yeah, often okay. is a, yeah. I, yeah. I think the most, the people that I use them a lot in are 
um, women who are weightlifting or participating in high-level exercise that have gotten to the point where they have a very strong pelvic floor and they're doing all the work and they've done all the work, yet they still leak in their sport because of the load. Moving on and just giving you another random question. What role does nutrition have on the health of your pelvic floor? Oh, I would love to work. I would love to have a nutritionist sit with me on half of my my consults because it's such a it's such an area where it's like, what is my scope of practice? But what like I don't just want to be that person that treats somebody and says, okay, now you need to treat this, but I'm not even going to give you any hint of information on it. I just want you to go and see another professional. And then they if they don't, then they're worse off. And if they do, then they have to wait anyway. It's um, it's a battle I'm dealing with. <laughs> um, nutrition plays a massive role because you think about the role that nutrition plays on bladder and bowel function and therefore affects mm. the pelvic floor. So if we think about the bladder, um, nu- nutrition and hydration plays a massive role in urge- urgency and urgency incontinence. So things like um, caffeine or tea or chai tea, um, those types of things can stimulate overactive bladder. Same with citrus fruits, and there's lots of other things that can stimulate overactive bladder. And then if we move on to constipation, constipation being one of the biggest risk factors for pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, and then diet plays a massive role in that. So, um, you know, diet nutrition do play a, a big role in pelvic health, but not specifically in the health of the muscle, more yeah, okay. to do with what the bladder and bowel are doing. Yeah. So how do we best care for our pelvic floor antenatally, and when should we start pelvic floor exercises in pregnancy? Pelvic floor muscle exercises are important during pregnancy and we don't just say they're important because we think theoretically they would be good. We now have evidence to support and say that doing pelvic floor muscle training during pregnancy can reduce your leaking during pregnancy as well as in the postpartum period. So the first 12 months after delivering a baby, you reduce your risk of leaking urine if you do these exercises during pregnancy and they can also help with your second stage of your labour. So by during the pushing stage they can help with pushing Mm. and they can also so they can help they talk about it reducing the second stage of labor and you know that's controversial because we don't want to a very short second stage of labor but you also don't like a really long second stage of labor comes with its own issues right yeah clearly i didn't do enough pelvic floors (laughs) no don't worry i like live and breathe pelvic floor muscle training and i was like that person where the obstetrician's looking at her watch being like the hospital policy is two hours you've been pushing for two hours hurry this up (laughs) yeah i was even just like I feel like your second stage goes really quickly in your own head anyway. Well, it did for me. But my partner said afterwards, like, I was looking at the clock just being like, this is taking ages. <laughs> Savage. I'm glad he didn't voice that out loud. Oh, I would have bloody killed him. So I'm very interested to know what type of pelvic floor exercises would a pregnant woman be doing to try and reduce their length of second stage? First of all, we'd work on coordination. So we'd make sure a female knows where their pelvic floor is, yeah. that they know when how to squeeze it and how to relax it. And then we would go through an exercise program that lasts for about 12 weeks. So you don't need to be doing pelvic floor muscle training exercises every day from the start of your pregnancy to the end. I think it's really just starting. Usually, ideally, you start around the second trimester and you do them for 10 to 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario, you do one week. That's better than nothing. Yeah. So. Um, you know, I think that there is benefits to just even doing a week where you concentrate on what the feeling of squeezing and what the feeling of relaxing is like and building your endurance in that. Um, but the exercises would be, like I said, we cue back passage first because we know most women do the right thing if we cue back passage. We'd be doing a combination of holding for long periods of time, so six seconds, say, doing that repetitively for 10 reps, and then we might work on how do they squeeze and relax quickly. Because you also don't want a 
overactive, tight pelvic floor. Correct. And that's why we always have to try to push a baby out. 100%. And that's why we always start with coordination. So pelvic floor muscle training isn't about tightening and, and strengthening the pelvic floor. It's about you need a muscle to be long and to be able to be strong. So we always lengthen first and then strengthen through coordination. Right. So we want long and strong. Long and strong. Long and strong. Long and strong. So would you recommend every woman seeing a women's health physio during their pregnancy? I think there's a lot of benefits, yes. Yeah. Um, but that said, if we think about multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary practice, if a midwife can give this information, if we were able to educate mid, you know, midwifery students better on the role of the pelvic floor, um, I think that there is scope within your practice to teach this to your patients. Or even GPs as well. It's, it's, it's tough though because it's, if you just get told to do pelvic floor mm, exercises during yeah. pregnancy, that means nothing and most women don't do it Yeah. Um, because they're like, well, that doesn't really matter to me. I'm not experiencing any problems. I don't understand. But it's not until you say you could reduce, reduce this risk yes. and reduce this risk and this is how you do it and this is specifically how often you should do it and how many reps and sets. When it's more tangible and meaningful, yeah. then patients do it, right? Yeah. And GPs don't have the time to do that. No, yeah, that's true. So why does bladder weakness and frequency in urination occur in pregnancy? And then what are the risk factors for developing this in pregnancy as well? I think lots of women are going to experience it even if they have a normal functioning pelvic floor and bladder. And it comes down to the mechanical space that the baby is occupying. So the pressure on the bladder and the pressure on the pelvic floor, but also hormones. So your hormones are going to allow the bladder muscles to stretch and lengthen. And, you know, um, if, if you've ever seen us, you know, an ultrasound view of the bladder, it sort of scoops up and around mm-hmm. over the front of the belly during, you know, second and third trimester. And that those hormonal effects are going to play a part in, you know, bladder, that sensation of bladder weakness or needing to go to the toilet all the time. So it's a mixture of the hormones and the, the physicality of what going a baby just behind your bladder does to, to your bladder. So I did a little bit of research before this episode um, and the Cochrane Review published a systematic review in antenatal perineal massage and it was found that the daily perineal massage from 34 weeks in a pregnant woman increased the chance of an intact perineum for first time mothers by almost 10%. Um, and in addition, it was found that they were also less likely to have an episiotomy. And there wasn't actually a big difference in women who were on like their second or third babies and, and had had a previous vaginal birth. Um, however, a large portion of women in this category recorded less perineal pain actually post-birth. So what are your thoughts on perineal massage as a physio? Love from it. a physio's perspective? good research really? behind it. It's cheap. Easy to do. <laughs> Anybody can do it. Does and it does. You do no harm. And if anything, worst case scenario, if you're not, if we're not actually generating mechanical change in the perineum by massaging, we're at least teaching a woman where their perineum is, what it feels like yeah. for it to stretch, how to breathe through that sensation. And also, while we're on that topic, what are your thoughts on the epinose? So we have some research on the epinose or any type of perineal massage stretching device. And so the epino is really just a device that you insert vaginally and you blow it up. It's like a little balloon. You blow it up to certain levels um, and then slowly take it out. And so it's a device that does the perineal stretching for you. Used alone, there has been shown to be little to no effect on reducing risk of tearing in first-time mums. But that, to me, doesn't 
that research doesn't match up to the anecdotal evidence that I see in women. Yeah. I know lots of women that use it and swear by it. Um, and I'm not here to say that it didn't work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you agree? Yeah. Do you think the limitations to evidence are purely just because no one's done a randomized control trial as opposed to the fact yeah, that there, not there is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think there's lots of reasons why. Um, and I do think that for somebody that can't, you know, access their perineum for whatever reason, maybe they've got, a, you know, they, they're carrying twins or mm. they just have poor dexterity in their hands and they just can't get around to their perineum and they don't feel comfortable with a partner doing it, then I think it's a great adjunct. And yeah. like I said, again, if worst case scenario, you just get used to that sensation of your peri stretching, breathing through it, being aware of what that area of your body is and how it works um i just think any any um vagina touching during a pregnancy can can be beneficial yeah we're all about <laughs> building the connection with yourself well yeah you do need a connection what does a um pelvic floor assessment really entail during pregnancy so not all women that go and see a pelvic floor physiotherapist during the antenatal period will have an internal vaginal exam but if we are checking pelvic floor, we would check um, with a single digit, you'd be lying on your back and we would be looking at assessing through the vagina, the strength and the resting tone and how coordinated your pelvic floor muscles are. So it all up takes about five minutes and we can give lots of feedback on that, just that single digit assessment. So the same way we would, you know, if you come to see a physio and a physiotherapist is teaching you how to squeeze your quads properly in an exercise because you've got knee pain, they're putting their hands on your knee and they're working out, mm. you know, can I feel this muscle contracting and this muscle not contracting? Um, and the same is for the pelvic floor. We just do it in a little bit more of an awkward way. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're there oh. too. <laughs> well, I just, I feel like a lot of people, for people that don't work in an industry where you're dealing with like vaginas or penises or anything like on the regular basis, for someone that does work in that daily, you don't look at vaginas as something that's like awkward or sexual or yeah, anything, anything like, like that. No. no, for someone that works in it and this, we're seeing them every single day. It's yeah. just another day on the job, really. It's just another yeah. vagina. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody, compl- you know, lots of patients are like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't shave. Yes, I didn't oh, yes. How much? Ma- no one cares. Yes. Fully. I've actually even had someone go for an emergency Caesar before and the doctor outside was like, does she need a shave? And I thought, well, I don't know. Even though like, I legit had been looking at her vagina all day and I could not even think whether she needed a shave or not. Like you're not even really looking at it. You just yeah. don't even really think about those things. So is there any instance where you wouldn't recommend a woman to have a vaginal birth based on your pelvic floor assessment antenatally? I would possibly be an advocate for not in some cases, and they're usually the case where somebody's had a previous... Like, it's very rare that I would ever not suggest a vaginal birth in a first-time birthing mother. Mm -hmm. They're usually in, you know, second- or third-time mums that have had very, very traumatic childbirths the first time vaginal births the first time around and they have a lot of psychosocial trauma that's associated with it plus ongoing symptoms so mm-hmm. for example one woman who i've had that conversation with has had a previous fourth degree tear yeah okay she fell pregnant very very close together mm-hmm. um she's got ongoing fecal incontinence never was able to achieve a good pelvic floor muscle squeeze oh, um and so it's sort of just like I, and yeah. she's got a rectal prolapse that's only a small grade so it's a, a low grade rectal prolapse 
it could easily progress in a vaginal birth. So she just is, I guess, educated on her risks. And we have that discussion between us and the colorectal surgeon and the treating obstetrician. Yeah. So this isn't something you'd see um, in your private practice. This is something I see in the hospital. Public, yeah. Public health um, sector. Yeah. I don't, not in my history working in private. In private, have I ever told somebody I don't think they should go for a yeah. vaginal birth? Yeah. Because from the Australian Institute of Health and Wellbeing, it's stated that from 2004 to 2018, the instrumental rate in first-time vaginal births was 22.8% in 2004, and then that increased in 2018 to 26.1%. So it wasn't actually very different over the different states in Australia, although Queensland, yeah, they were very similar. Um, Queensland and New South Wales had some of the lowest rates in comparison to Western Australia and Victoria. And episiotomies with instrumentals had also risen from 60.7% to 77.6%. And this could be attributed to the prevention. The Perineal Bundle is a quality improvement initiative modelled from the NHS over in the UK. And it aimed at clinically standardising how midwives and obstetricians should deliver babies. The bundle was adopted in response to the rise in OASI. Now, OASI stands for obstetric and anal sphincter injury. And to break this further, perineal trauma as a whole affects about 85% of women who birth vaginally. The degree of perineal trauma is measured, so it's a first degree, a second degree, a third degree, that third degree is then categorized into A, B, and C, and this refers to the significance of anal sphincter involvement. And then a fourth degree tear is where the tear extends from the vagina all the way through into the anus. Now, OASI is considered to be categorized by third and fourth degree tears. This um, perineal bundle was introduced to hospitals as an evidence-based model aimed at targeting the prevention of significant perineal trauma. We rolled this out before the NHS was actually able to publish evidence around its significance in improving OAC outcomes. The data that was published this year actually suggested that there was only a 0.3% improvement in prevention rates in OAC using the perineal bundle. So the perineal bundle consists of five different components. I won't go through them all that extensively, but basically it advises midwives and obstetricians to deliver in a certain way. So warm compresses to the perineum during birth. This is the only component of this perineal bundle that actually has adequate evidence supporting it and has become a routine practice for midwives in particular and also not only does it significant in reducing trauma but also for the feeling for women sensation yeah the sensation it helps as well another component is hands-on so basically what that means is as uh, the presenting party's crowning which should be a head um, <laughs> or if it could be a bum if you are delivering <laughs> um, a breech vaginal. Yes, um, if you're well supported. If, <laughs> if your hospitals do that. <laughs> breech vaginals. Hands on, so basically that means that there should be contact and flexion applied to the head as it's crowning to, I guess, control the descent of the head on the perineum. Performing an episiotomy is another component. Now, this is only in relation to an instrumental birth, so either a vacuum or forceps. The doctor performing the instrumental birth should perform an episiotomy, and the episiotomy should be cut at 60 degrees from the midline. With the perineal bundle, they've also rolled out 
specific episiotomy scissors that have a guided angle so that all practitioners cut at the same yeah, angle. Yeah, I like those scissors. <laughs> the component that I hate the most is irregardless of whether there is presence of perineal trauma or not, the perineum must be inspected by two people. So two midwives, an obstetrician, a midwife, whatever it may be, and a rectal examination must be performed. So if the perineum is intact, you still have to perform a rectal examination, keeping in mind that some of these women may not have any pain relief on board. I more am concerned about the fact that it's the two-person thing. So if you're an experienced obstetrician, midwife, whoever, and you examine someone and they don't need any suturing whatsoever, you then need to get someone else to then do another examination as well. Yeah. Which that for the for a woman going through that, it's not nice. Okay, I'm gonna play devil's advocate here. Yeah. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> for me personally, I think like it is so tough to have that, but the worst case scenario if we don't is missed third and fourth degree tears. Yes. And some of the most horrific hor- horrific situations I've seen have been missed third and fourth degree tears in terms of dysfunction where we have, you know, I have women presenting with fecal fecal incontinence you know, 12, 24, 32 months post-birth. Three years with fecal incontinence, that's yuck. Pain, trauma, not ever wanting to go back to intercourse, feeling like you're, you know, not connected with your body, hating your body, hating your child because they created, you know, they led to that childbirth. Like, so much complexity around some of these patients have easily been my hardest patients to treat. And 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 I understand that as well. Having said that, most midwives should be trained and if they're not comfortable in inspecting a perineum on their own then 100 percent they should ask for a, a second opinion but we are it's very easy to identify a first and a second degree yeah. tear yeah but on top of that as well i think it's preparing the woman antenatally for this i think the conversations need to be started earlier than you've just had a baby we're gonna now talk about inst- inspecting your perineum and suturing and everything very true. yeah I know it's just it's, it's so hard, hard yeah. because birth is we need to normalize birth and yeah. it's and it's particularly from a midwife's perspective as well we're always tr- trotting this like fine line of not over medicalizing the process and abiding by policy and guidelines which we do so for example you know this perineal bundle is in the local hospital that we work at and yes we do abide by it it doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with everything but that's our hospital policy and in order to work and maintain our registration we have to abide by these and it's i think it's like it's the one size fits all thing that's there exactly is no one right. size fits all and there needs to be some flexibility Correct. as a experienced clinician who understands your patient and their anatomy yeah but there is no there's no wiggle room yeah yeah how can women access you how can we find you yeah yeah so i i obviously work both publicly and privately in northwest sydney um if you wanted if you wanted to reach out to me from a private point of view i work at the hills physiotherapy in kelly ridge but most of my platform is a free information platform and it is the pelvicfloorproject.com is the website. Lots of free information. If you're a pregnant mum, there is a download, downloadable document about how to find and squeeze your pelvic floor. And there is also a downloadable document on evidence-based practice for a return to running after having a baby. Ooh, a lot of women ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I am pelvic floor with Caitlin on Instagram. So I answer lots of questions. I am very friendly, so reach out. You are. You're amazing. Very. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. And Thank we'll you. see you for part two, yeah. all things postnatal pelvic floor. So thank you for listening to this episode of With Woman. We hope you found this useful for your journey and you can find us on Instagram at withwoman.thepodcast. So flick us a follow and get amongst it. You'll find our latest episode updates there and also please feel free to slide on into our DMs if there are any topics you'd like us to discuss in the future. That's it for us. Bye. Bye.